you take your Bibles, please turn to the book of Acts. We continue in our series, The Gospel in Motion. And if you remember last week, we saw how God saved Paul's life by using a Roman commander in Jerusalem to, to protect Paul. Um, his name was Claudius Lysus. He sent Paul away secretly by night with a guard of 470 soldiers to keep him from being murdered by a band of fanatical Jews who had made a vow not to eat until, to eat or drink until they had assassinated Paul. So God in his divine providence took care of Paul from these fanatical Jews. And Paul was then sent to Caesarea with a letter from Claudius Lysias um, indicating his innocence of the charges brought against him. But today in our text in chapter 24, Paul is on trial before Felix, the Roman governor, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So we'll be reading from Acts chapter 24. If you would please stand with me as we read that passage out of respect to our Lord's word this morning. Acts chapter 24. And after five days... The high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion, that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends 
should be prevented from attending to his needs. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can have your word in our hands this morning. We ask that you would help us not to take that for granted. But we pray for your help, Lord. As our brother Robert prayed, that we wouldn't just be the hearers, but that we would be the doers of your word. So we pray for your spirit, please, to teach us, help us to understand this narrative, and to make the necessary applications that need to be made um, to every single one of us here this morning. I pray for your help. I do ask, Lord, that you would speak through me and that the Spirit would help me to deliver your word accurately today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So the famous actor Robert Redford, a Hollywood actor, he was walking through a, a hotel lobby the one day. And a woman stopped him and followed him, well, followed him to the elevator and, and stopped him as he was about to enter. And she asked him, are you the real Robert Redford? Um, she was very excited with that question. And as the doors of the elevator closed, he replied to her, only when I am alone. Only when I am alone. Well, D.L. Moody, he said it well. He said, Character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are in the dark. And what we think and what we do when we are alone reveals who we really are. It reveals a lot about who we are as a person. It reveals a lot about our character. It is a true test of our character, what we think and what we do when we are alone. And the Lord revealed and preserved these chapters in the book of Acts not just to provide a history lesson for the church of a, of a later generation. He gave them to us as instructions as well as, as warnings, but to teach us about our character as well. And this specific chapter does just that. But I would remind you, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12 tells us, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. And what we have here has been written down for us as an example. There are characters here that we can learn from. And in our passage today, we see Paul on trial before Felix. And the title of my sermon is When Integrity Goes on Trial. When Integrity Goes on Trial. It wasn't just Paul's actions he was on trial for. It was his very character that was being tried and tested. And in his defense before Felix to the, the charges that the Jewish leaders had brought against him, Paul proclaimed his character. He proclaimed, he defended his integrity by saying in verse 16, if you look there in our passage, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. So he proclaimed this, but he didn't just talk he lived this character. He lived this integrity in, in his life. Um, but in this passage, we're not just exposed to Paul. There are a number of different characters here that we, that we learn about. Um, even though Paul is on trial, there, there are also other characters who are on trial before God. Um, not only is Felix mentioned, but also Ananias, the high priest, 
the elder of Israel. Um, there were Pharisees there, and there were many Sadducees there. There was Tertullius, who was the lawyer, and then Drusilla, who was the wife of Felix. And we will learn a little bit about every one of those characters' integrity as it is exposed before us. We see, unfortunately, their lives were lacking. We see, unfortunately, the corruptness of their lives. And these people were yet to face the ultimate court, and not just the court of man, but the court of Almighty God. So this morning, we start in verse 1. We look at Paul being accused before Felix. Um, in verse 1 to 9, we see that. The Jews really wasted no time, as we saw last week. Verse 1 tells us clearly, after Paul had been in Caesarea for five days, he had just been there five days, they came and they demanded that they put Paul on trial before the Roman governor, Felix. And the high priest, Ananias, he came um, down with some of the, the elders and Tertullius. Now, Tertullius was their spokesperson. He, in fact, was um, their attorney, their lawyer that they had hired. That they had hired. Tertullius is a, is a Latin name. So he was probably a Roman. He was probably a Roman who knew the Roman laws. And they hired him to make these accusations against Paul. But he begins in verses 2 and through to verse 4 with opening remarks, really that are designed to win over the jury. And remember, the jury is Felix here. They didn't have a, a jury of peers here. It was the governor. And he was trying to flatter Felix. Half of his speech really just consists of obvious flattery towards Felix. And Tertullius promises, he says, I'll promise to be, to be brief, as if to say, you know, this case is, is a no-brainer. Just, just grant us what we ask for by getting rid of this pesky fellow, and we can all get on with our lives with important matters. And what he does, he brings three charges against Paul. Three charges against Paul. Although the, the Jewish leaders, their, their main gripe with Paul was, was religious, they knew that religious charges would not go very far with the, the Roman governor. Now, Rome took charges of political unrest seriously, and if Paul were to be found guilty of sedition, he would be executed. So this was their plan. And they framed the first two charges in terms of political uprest, political sedition. We see in verse 5, the first part of verse 5, they say that Paul was a pest. Paul was a pest. And that word is pestilence um, in, in, the, in, the, in the older versions, the older translations. If you have a, a different translation, it's also translated as plague. Um, pest is a plague. And what they were saying is Paul is... Paul is like these pests. He's spreading unrest among the Jews throughout the, the Roman Empire. And by implication, they were, they were using this word so that the, the governor would understand that he just needs to be stamped out like all other pests, like you do with the pests. You stamp, you stamp out the problem. Look at the, the second part of verse 5. The word riot is used in the ESV. And they are accusing Paul of, of being an insurrectionist, a, a, a rebel, a revolutionary who is seditious, causing riots. And what he's doing, he's implying that, that Paul is trying to get Jews all over the world 
to turn against the almighty Roman government, which was a lie. And thirdly, we see since he had tried to desecrate the the Jewish temple, according to them, Rome should hand him over to the Jews to execute him. And of course, they were hoping this would catch the ear of the Romans, for they understood how sacred the the temple was to the Jews. And of course, any uprising um, caused in the temple, outside the temple, would inflame the rest of the nation of of Israel and cause a a riot, a, a revolution which which they did not want. And we can see from the narrative and even from our studies from the book of Acts that these charges were not true. These charges in many ways were twisted. These these, these charges were were in many ways manipulated to appeal to the, the Roman administration. But at the end of the day, there wasn't any truth in these charges. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us, The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So these high priests were there, the Jewish high priests were there, the Sadducees were there, the Pharisees. They all agreed with these charges that that Tertullius was, was making. And even though they were all lies, they were willing to affirm them. And I think what makes it so sad is that these were the religious leaders. These were the religious leaders in Israel. These were the most religious men of the first century. You know, they believed the Bible, more or less. They outwardly kept the law. They went through the the externals of religion. They wore the, the right clothes. They spoke the right Language, some could say they spoke Christianese, like many people do today, the language of Christianity. They said the, the right things, they went through the, the right motions, but their hearts were corrupt. Their hearts were corrupt, and they would bend any religious conviction to gain their, their own end. They wanted Paul dead, they wanted Paul away. And their religion that they, that they were so faithfully following had not changed their hearts. In fact, it had turned them into liars. Their religion had turned them into liars. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, the scriptures tell us, Christians, we are commanded to speak the truth. We are commanded to speak the truth. John 8, 44 tells us that The devil is the father of all lies, but God is the God of truth, and because he is God, he cannot lie. Jesus himself claimed that that he was the way, that he was the truth, that he was the life, and that no one would come to the Father except through him. And as his followers, we must become people who speak the truth in every situation. A small boy was on the witness stand in an important lawsuit, and the prosecuting attorney, he cross-examined him and then delivered what he thought would be a crushing blow to the boy's testimony, and he asked him, your father has been telling you how to, to testify, hasn't he? And the boy replied quickly, yes, he has. And the attorney, thinking that he had beaten this young boy, he said, okay then, just tell us how your father 
has told you to testify? Well, the boy said modestly, Father told me the lawyers would try to tangle me in my testimony, but if I would just be careful to tell the truth, I could repeat the same thing every time. That's the truth. He wouldn't have to cover up his lies, isn't it? Very well said. A lesson for all of us when it comes to speaking the truth. But despite the lies, there were other things that were going on here. And we see in verse 10 to 21, my second point, Paul's defense before Felix. Paul was wise enough to see through these lies. But here's his defense. Look at verse 10. He says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul begins his defense not by flattery. This isn't the same as Tertullius. He's respectful, but he's not, he's not speaking flattery here. Felix was not a nice man. His character was, was lacking in many ways, but still Paul was respectful to this person in authority. This was Paul's way of saying, well, we all understand you've been around a long time. You know the, the Jewish customs. You know um, their traditions. And I hope that you will be faithful to listen to me. Look at verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 13. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So we know from the scriptures that Paul had no time to incite a riot. Um, while he was in Jerusalem, he had only been there 12 days before, and now he was detained by the Jews. So what, what they were saying didn't even make sense. And for, furthermore, he did not incite a revolution because he, he had made no attempt anywhere to, to stir up trouble. That wasn't his agenda. And lastly, Paul showed the Jews could not substantiate one charge against him. They had no proof. They had no proof about their claims. Look at verse 14. I believe these verses, uh, verse 14 to 16, are really the key to understanding our passage. And if you have a pen, I would encourage you to underline these, these verses. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So firstly, we see that Paul admits to Felix that he was part of the way. Um, we've, we've looked at that already, the word that was used there was a term that was used for the first century Christians. They believed that Jesus was the way. It was a way of, of living. It was used in many ways to describe the, the early Christians. And undoubtedly, Paul pointed out that the Jews thought that the way was, um, was heresy. But Paul understood clearly, as he says here, that, that Christianity was a fulfillment of Judaism. He knew that all true believers in Christ faithfully worship Jehovah God, the, the God of, of Israel through Jesus Christ, God's own Son. 
So Christianity is the fulfillment of all the types in the shadows of the Old Testament that we, that we read in the Scriptures. And Paul believed everything in the, in the Scriptures. He believed in the law. He believed in the prophets. A claim that not even the Sadducees and the, and, and the Pharisees could make at this point. And basically what Paul was saying is, as to the charge that I'm a Christian and part of the way, he's saying very clearly, I, I'm guilty of that. Yes, I am. And I will tell all the world that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed of that. And Paul did not hesitate. Paul didn't make excuses. He didn't stutter. He didn't deny that he was a Christian when confronted by this higher court. And what he's doing here, he's boldly claiming his faith, even though it may have meant imprisonment, or it may even have meant the end of his life. And despite the accusations, and despite the slander on his character, Paul wanted to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. And this concept of maintaining a good conscience is an important one throughout Scripture, not, not just in our passage. Turn with me, if you would, keep your finger in Acts, but turn to 1 Timothy Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy, just after 2 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul had written this later after this incident in Acts. He had written this letter to Timothy. He says in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You know, the problem is if we only live outwardly before men, then, then we are nothing less than what the Bible calls hypocrites. A few years ago, we did a, a sermon series from from Matthew chapter 23, and the title of that sermon series was Hypocrisy and Grace, and we studied the lives of these, these Pharisees. They were hypocrites. Outwardly, they were, they were very clean. They, they wore the right clothes. They spoke the right language, but on the inside, it tells us in Matthew 23 that these Pharisees were like tombs. They were rotting from the inside. They were like rotting corpses. And it's very easy to, to fake it, isn't it, in, in front of others. But when it comes to God, we can't fake it before God. Because God is the one who examines our hearts. God is the one who knows our hearts. And Jesus said that all sin begins in the heart. All sin begins in the heart. And so we need to get in the habit of, of judging it at that level, before it gets any worse, before it gets any further. And if we don't develop this habit, then we end up deceiving ourselves if we, if we think that, that we are walking with God. And it's especially important to, to not rationalize or make excuses for our sin by, by blaming other people. And having a blameless conscience before God means that we quickly confess, that we quickly turn from our sin 
that, that His Spirit has convicted us of or that His Word has revealed to us. No matter what others may have done to us, being honest with ourselves and being willing to confess and turn from that sin. And Paul says that his practice of, of seeking to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men comes from, comes from one thing. And he says it, it's the certainty of the resurrection, the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. We spoke about hell this morning at our family Bible hour. And Tina's rightly showed us that without the, the bad news, there really isn't any good news. Because the truth is there is going to be a judgment. And then we're all going to stand before God at the end of our lives and give an account. And those who are found wanting are going to be turned away to hell. Where they will pay for their sins. If they reject the payment that that Jesus has made, then they will have to make the payment for their sins in a place called hell. And Paul was very aware of this. He understood that there would be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, the wicked. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're of all people most to be pitied. And Paul is basically saying, you know, if there is no God, there is no resurrection. And if there is no God, there is no future judgment. And he's saying, then you are a fool to even believe in Christianity. We spoke about that even this morning, isn't it? If people can, can talk away hell, then they can talk away judgment. And then they can talk away God. And that's what people do all the time. But the scriptures teach us something very different. There is a God. There is a resurrection. And there is a, a future judgment. And we will stand before God and give an account. Think about this. If there's no eternity, if there's no eternity, then then go ahead and, and live your life with the pleasures you want to live for the immediate. For the immediate. Because you'll soon will die. So, so go ahead and, and just enjoy your life like it doesn't matter. But there is eternity that awaits us. Our present circumstance and our present temporary existence is, is temporary. It's just that. We will all die. Sooner or later, and we will give an account. And if God is real, and if He is alive, and if He is going to raise every person to stand before Him in judgment, then everyone needs to repent of their sins. That's the only hope we have. They need to trust in Christ as their Savior. And all life will be blameless before God and before men if we are willing to repent of our sins and live in light of eternity. If you cannot go from here today with, with a clear conscience that I'm speaking about, then your greatest need and your most urgent need this morning is to get right with God. Is to get right with God. Is to be honest with the Lord, to be honest with yourself, 
and to realize that you will give an account to Him one day. If you want to live a life with a blameless conscience, you can only do it in light of God, in light of eternity. And Paul understood that very well. We see in our third point, Paul is put under house arrest. Paul is put under house arrest. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So we see from our passage that Felix the governor, he had a good knowledge about the way this, this sect, this group of Christians. And the word is used in verse 22 um, as accurate knowledge. It wasn't just a general knowledge. He had an accurate knowledge about Christianity. And what that means is that he knew accurate facts about Jesus Christ. He knew that the gospel of grace was real. Um, even though it was a thorn in the side of the Jews, he had accurate information about that. And as a result of this accurate information, we see he decides, in view of his knowledge, to put off a decision. He doesn't make any decision at this point. And Felix adjourns the court, and he postpones this, this decision on Paul. However, we see Paul remained a prisoner. He stayed a prisoner for two years. He was under house arrest. And, and the question is, why? Why did this happen? Why would the Lord allow this to happen, even though Paul was innocent? And some think Felix was was a weak man, and he kept Paul in prison to really just placate the Jews and to keep them happy. Um, we know that Felix was interested in public opinion. Maybe he should have stood on truth. Maybe he should have said, okay, case is dismissed. But however, there, there may be a deeper reason for the, doing what he did. Perhaps Paul had stirred his interest in Christianity and perhaps Felix wanted to know more about the gospel. And we'll look at that next week. Um, he had some knowledge of the way, but now he, I think, started to get an intense interest in the, the spiritual aspects of Christianity. Even Felix's wife, Drusilla, she starts to, to ask questions. But, but remember, at the end of the day, Felix had been given a, a letter from Claudius Lysias, Stating that Paul was innocent. Stating that Paul was innocent. And he didn't need Claudius Lysias to come to Caesarea. Because he had been given this letter saying that he was innocent. And Paul was put under house arrest when he really was totally innocent of all these charges. And he stays under house arrest, as I said, for two years. And we, we don't hear anything more of Paul's ministry for these two Yes. Other than, that, he, other than that, he talked to Felix and to his wife, Drusilla, occasionally. And, and Paul really did get a raw deal. But I, I want you to notice, there's no, there's no indication of bitterness on, on Paul's part. Christ had a plan. As we saw last week, Paul believed and had confidence in the providence of God. And he believed that the promise that God had made to him that he would get to Rome at some point. He didn't know when. The Lord didn't say when. 
He didn't say how, but he knew he would get to Rome eventually, and he trusted in the promises of the Lord. And some have thought that God used these two years of imprisonment in Caesarea as a time for, for Paul to put his theology um, more completely together so that um, he could write the prison epistles, and maybe he did, even during this time. We don't know. We, we don't have um, the evidence to, to back any of this up. But what, what we do know is that God wanted Paul to be a witness to Felix, this governor, and to his wife, Drusilla. And so for two years, that's really what Paul is doing. He is spending his confinement here, his imprisonment, sharing the gospel with Felix and his wife. And next week, we'll look further at this, this curious case of Felix and Drusilla. But I think the lesson we can learn here is that, you know, in this life, we, we don't get guarantees that everything will go well. There's no guarantees for the Christian. You know, when we walk uprightly before God and before men, everything's going to be fine. We don't see that in the Scriptures. In fact, we see the opposite at times. Remember in the Old Testament, Joseph, Joseph, he acted with, with godly integrity. Um, remember Potiphar's wife, she tried to seduce him. And he resisted these seductive moves of Potiphar. And at the end of the day, he landed up in prison for several years for being a man of character and integrity. But we know that even when he was in prison, the Lord was with him there. And I think the truth, the, the truth is what we can learn is it's better to have the Lord with you in prison than to have sinful pleasure without the Lord. It's better to have the Lord with you in prison than to have sinful pleasures without the Lord. It's better to be in custody with a clear conscience as Paul was than to have power and, and money and to be alienated from, from God like, like Felix was. We need to devote ourselves to living with integrity. We need to devote ourselves to be people who speak the truth in every situation. We need to be people who are not ashamed of the gospel and are willing to speak truth into people's lives in every situation by keeping a blameless conscience before God and man. Now, however difficult your circumstances here are, if you are living with a clear conscience before God and man, you will sleep well. You will sleep well, knowing that you will dwell in heaven with God throughout eternity. If you are right before God, if the Lord was to appear before you and to ask you to give an account of your life tomorrow, would you have that clear conscience before the Lord? Would you have that clear conscience before the Lord? I wonder if you've ever heard the expression, face the music. And here's how that phrase came about. So many years ago, a man wanted to play in the, the imperial orchestra in Japan, but he couldn't play a single note. And since he was a person of great wealth and of great influence, however, he, he demanded to be allowed to join the orchestra so that he could perform in front of the king. And the conductor agreed to let him sit in the second row of the orchestra. And even though he couldn't read music, he was, he was given a flute. And when a concert would begin, he would raise his instrument, he would pucker his lips, and he would move his fingers. And he went through all the motions of playing, but he never made a, a single sound. 
And this deception, it went on for, for two years. And then one day a new conductor took over the imperial orchestra and he told the orchestra that he wanted to personally audition all the players to see how well that they could play. And the audition would weed out all of those who did not meet his standards and he would dismiss them from the orchestra. And one by one the players performed in his presence. Of course, frantic with worry, when it was this man's turn, the phony flutist, he pretended to be sick. And the doctor was ordered to come and examine him. And the, doc the doctor declared that he was perfectly well, that there was nothing wrong with him. And the conductor insisted that the man appear and demonstrate his skills. And of course, shamefacedly, the man had to confess that he was a fake and that was the day that he had to face the music. The day he had to admit that he was a fake. And I think many people go through the motions of Christianity. Many professing Christians. Many people in church. And they attend church. May even go to the youth group. They may even recite Bible verses. They may say all the right things. Speak Christianese. But in reality though... They are fakes. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were spiritual fakes. They were religious. They looked the part. They spoke the language. But they were very much like this phony flutist, pretending to know and to love God. And going through the motions really is a, is a dangerous substitute for true Christianity. We can sing Christian songs without considering the person to who we are singing and about who we are singing. We so easily lose sight of who, who God is and that He is the creator of this, this universe who is even now very present in this world. And we forget that God knows the thoughts of our hearts and He knows the attitudes of our minds. And it becomes very easy to fake it in front of others. But the truth is we cannot fake it before God. He is the one who examines our hearts. He is the one who examines our hearts. Remember the quote from D.L. Moody that I started with? Character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are in the dark. What does our passage this morning reveal about your character? What does our passage this morning reveal about your character? Are you serving the Lord with a clear conscience? Are you walking uprightly before the Lord in your difficult situations? Can you say with Paul and can you say with Joseph that, that it's better to have the Lord with you in this prison than to have sinful pleasures without Him? And Jesus said in Mark 7 verse 21 that, that all sin begins in the heart. And every time we take Holy Communion, we are challenged. We are challenged from God's Word to examine our hearts, to judge ourselves so that we are not judged by the Lord. And today again, we are called to get in the habit of examining ourselves, examining ourselves at this very level before it gets further and further and further away. And we end up being like these religious hypocrites. If we just go through the religious motions, 
and we ignore our sin, and we even make excuses for our sin. We rationalize our, our sin by, by blaming others. We are doing nothing more than deceiving ourselves, hurting ourselves. If we think we walk with God and we're not willing to examine ourselves in light of God's holy word, in light of a holy God, then we are just faking it at the end of the day. We need to have a blameless conscience before God. And it means that we quickly confess our sins. It means that we are willing to turn away from our sins when the Spirit of God convicts us, when His Word reveals it to us. No matter what others may have done to us. No matter even if it is our fault. So our challenge this morning is devote yourself to living with integrity by speaking truth in every situation, by living in line with God's Word and by keeping a blameless conscience before God and man. However difficult your circumstances here are, you will sleep well. If you are not sure about this this morning, I would encourage you to come and speak to one of the elders today. If you are not sure whether you are a believer or not, if you have examined your heart and you find yourself lacking, please come and speak to us. Let us show you from the Word today how you can be sure that you are a Christian. But Christian, hear God's Word this morning. Live with integrity. Walk blameless before our God and men so that He may get the glory and that the gospel will be proclaimed without hindrance to a world in need of this glorious Savior that we serve. Father, thank you for your word today. Again, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul in all of his circumstances. Lord, good or bad, thick or thin, he wanted to work, walk with a clear conscience before you. Thank you for this man of integrity that we can model our lives after. But above him, Lord, we look to you. We look to your dear son who came to this earth who lived a perfect life, who didn't at any point fall into temptation. And Lord, we ask that we would do everything we can to conform to the image of your dear Son and to live a life pleasing to you. And we know we cannot do that without the help of the Spirit. And we pray that the Spirit would convict us of sin this week, that we would be willing to be filled with the Spirit and not with the flesh, that we would allow the Spirit to comfort us, but also to convict us and then be willing to confess that sin and turn from it as the Spirit of God leads us. So Lord, you know every one of our lives here this morning. You know our needs. You know our struggles. You know even how many hairs we have on our heads, Lord. So we pray, Father, that we would be sensitive to the Spirit this morning and allow Him to make the changes that need to be changed for your glory, Lord, and for our joy. And I pray, Lord, if there are people amongst us that are not saved, Lord, that you would grant them the repentance they need, that you would convict them, Lord, to the point where they call upon your name. Bring them to that point, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.